Welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, where we speak truth to patriarchal power, to predator capitalism, and have the courage to propose a new normal. Yes, a new normal so the 99% have a better quality of life. There is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though the status quo prefers you not know it. It hasn't always been this way, and it doesn't have to continue as it is. We don't need to be exploiting workers, the environment, humanity, and all manner of species on Mother Earth. We can have a world where women are equal, and 70% of us don't retire in poverty or continue to be punished for the religious dogma of men. Poor Eve's sin. And women have been made to suffer since that propaganda got thrown up against the wall and stuck. The alternative is sacred feminine liberation theology, which we talk about here, namely the sacred feminine as deity, archetype, and ideal, or values, which I've written a lot about in my books, Goddess Calling, described as comfort food to help us find our way during this evolution or Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. I hope you might find time to check those out. And thank you for being with me again tonight. I know you have many other choices out there, and you continue to come back week after week, and you are gas in my tank. You keep me going these nine years. And thanks, too, uh, to Celia for allowing me to use her music. Tonight's cut was called Meta Prayer. Check out Celia's CD sometimes uh, when you're looking for some new music. Uh, she has some good stuff out there, even one I believe that's called Pretty in Pink, which is really hilarious and a little bit racy, very funny stuff. And tonight, uh, I'm lucky to have with me Charlotte Cressy speaking about a foremother of ecofeminism by the name of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Yes, yes, two Charlottes, so you're not confused. I want to thank Charlotte Cressy for bringing awareness of Charlotte Perkins Gilman to us tonight. And please stay with me uh, after the interview for my What's the Buzz segment. Yes. <laughs> yes, because I have some things to share. Uh, I want to tell you about the Poverty Law Center's list of online sites that promote misogyny. Pretty disturbing, these groups. Uh, groups of men with names like the Counterfeminist, Boycott American Women, and the False Rape Society. Yes, yes, more on that later. It's very sad. Um, and I want to share with you the 13 facts about America's conservatives uh, that they would rather you forget, like uh, how those pilgrims were actually commies and how it saved their lives. And the U.S. Uh, was not intended to be a Christian nation, and the Bible is not the cornerstone of our law. And that, you know what, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a socialist and other interesting things that either conservatives would rather we not know or maybe they never realized it themselves 
I also want to tell you about the horrible pay discrepancy between the women playing championship soccer and the men. And I want to thank Pat for sending that to me. I'll be sharing 12 reasons you could should consider voting for Bernie Sanders. Yes, absolutely. And I have a wonderful little joke from um, a listener and friend, William, I, I will be sharing with you called Never Argue with a Woman. That one will tickle your funny bone. Uh, I'm going to tell you about uh, our special show coming up on Saturday this week. Yes, Saturday. And the special guest that warrants the special attention, his name is Andrew Goh. He's in the U.K., and we're going to be talking about the goddess that fell to earth. Mm, Am I teasing you with that one? Uh, But before we go any further, I must, I must, I must, I must remind you to hit your follow button uh, to follow the show, uh, hit it on the show page, even if you uh, believe you've done it sometime before, because uh, the notifications got screwed up, and uh, you probably aren't getting notifications of upcoming shows, and you might not even realize it. I know I went months and months, and uh, and I wasn't getting notifications of my own show, so you might not be getting them either. So go ahead and hit the follow button uh, to be sure you stay informed of all the wonderful guests uh, our show brings you each week, and um, that also keeps you part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine Family. And, uh, you know, we will close the What's the Buzz segment with the incredible words of the Pope, who could almost be a goddess advocate these days. I said almost, almost. We still have to bring him round on women things, but he's closer than any other pope for sure. So uh, don't leave me after my chat with Charlotte about Charlotte. So uh, here we go uh, with uh, tonight's show. I'm so happy to have with me tonight a lovely young woman activist I met at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. I think that's probably where we first cross paths. Um, When I think of uh, handing off the torch to the next generation, you know, without a doubt, she's the kind of woman I imagine who is worthy. And uh, I want to read you uh, a little bit of her bio. Uh, she is an Charlotte Cressy is an animal liberation activist. Don't you love that? I love how that sounds. An animal liberation activist. She's also an educator, an ecofeminist. She's a creator of Earth Energy Yoga, a lover of life, and in enthusiast for the ethical, environmental, physical, and spiritual beliefs of a vegan lifestyle. She's committed to helping humanity wake up to the revolutionary power of love. And you know what? She's beautiful, too. She really is. Charlotte, I have to ask you, as gorgeous as you are, (laughs) as gorgeous (laughs) as you are, when, when you meet men and you start talking about all of this, do they run away or do the brave ones sort of stick around? I, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a really great way to start off the show, Karen. Um, well, first of all, I don't lead with these ideas, but I think that I think this is all very. <laughs> I think it's all very attractive to people. I think that in our hearts, we all want to create a better world. I think we're all hearing the call of Mother Nature, of Mother Earth, and really feeling a sense that there's something that needs to shift in society. And so I think I think these ideas speak to people and those who are scared off by them 
well, then they are just editing themselves out of my life, and that's a good thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Because yeah. you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, I am still part of that generation where our mothers told us, you know, don't be too smart, you know, and all of those sorts of things, and go along to get along, and you know, don't be headstrong, and all of that sort of stuff. And um, you know, you're not like that at all. And I, I just wondered if the younger men coming up or maybe a little bit more courageous than my generation of men, you know? Maybe um, they're more with it, I guess. Yeah, well, I think I find men of all ages who are open to these ideas. So. Good, good. Well, we're yeah. making progress. We're making progress. Absolutely. So, um, so we're going to be talking about uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and I'm so glad you brought her to uh, my attention because I knew nothing about her until you started singing her praises, as you should have, because we all should know about her. She's one of these women that we should definitely drag out, especially uh, during Women's History Month. And um, she, was she, I think uh, she was probably from the Victorian age. Is that is that right? Yeah, she was alive, I believe, 1860 to 1935, so Victorian era into the early 1900s, yeah. Okay, and uh, you've, you've given me some notes here. You, she was a writer, a feminist, an activist, a sociologist, a theorist. Uh, Gil, Gilman's vision for a better world included consideration of the links between religion, male dominance, uh, ecological destruction, violence, meat-eating, war, oppression of women, violence against animals, women's status as property and poverty. Wow, she was an incredible woman before her time. Absolutely, yeah. She really looked at all of the issues, and she really got to the root issues instead of, you know, I like to say that surface solutions will bring superficial results, and I think that a lot of reformers take a very Band-Aid approach, but not Gilman. She really got to the root issues, and she explored economics, psychology, sociology, you know, what are the underlying belief systems that are driving domination, oppression, and um destructive hierarchy in the world and I think she got into all this because of her own experiences so she she really was focused on self-development and also and improving herself all the time and also trying to improve the world so she yeah there's like a long list of all these things that she addressed and she she was really solution oriented that's what I really love about her was that she was so optimistic and she really believed that we can create a better world and that's why I say that I believe in the revolutionary power of love because I truly do believe we can create a better world. And that's why she excites me. <laughs> well, you know, and, and we all do too, you know, I, or I think we would have given up on this uh, a long time ago. But um, it, before we start talking about her theories and everything, um, I wonder if you know much about her as a woman. I mean, was she married? Did she have children? Uh, did she meet? you know, meet meet with a lot of opposition for being such a deep thinker, you know, when women were just supposed to, I guess, be pretty and make lace and wear corsets, you know? Yeah, well, she actually came from a long line of social reformers. She's a descendant of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a famous book about slavery. 
So she had this in her blood and in her family, but her upbringing was very difficult. Her family moved once a year, every year, until she was 18. Her dad wasn't really around very much, and her mom struggled economically. And so Gilman really had a tough life. She also didn't get a lot of love and care, and um, her mom was very cold toward her. So she really explored the arts. She did a lot of reading, and she really developed her ideas. And through correspondence with her father through letters, she would ask him what he suggested that she should read. And so he would send her reading lists and send her books. And she was very self-educated. So I think that she was encouraged to explore her own ideas. But then in terms of her personal life, she does talk about that her she did get married very young and had a child. And that was um, a big problem for her in terms of self-expression. And she actually developed severe depression after having her daughter, Catherine. And then she decided to let her daughter, she got a divorce and decided to go to let her daughter go with her father and or her husband, but the daughter's father. Anyway, so she she realized that for her, that early marriage really stifled her creativity and her independence. And she talks about how she decided against her better judgment to marry and she says that she would leave she would leave her family and then she would feel better and she would go back to them and she would feel bad again so she realized it wasn't the right thing for her and that she really wanted uh to devote herself to her work so later on in life she did get married again to the right man who supported her in her beliefs but i think her first husband wanted her to be the traditional wife and that got in her way. Yeah, yeah, as I would imagine it would. Um I mean, let's remember she was born in 1860, she died in 1935. Um mm-hmm. I you know, I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been for her to try to go against society's um you know how she society would expect a woman to conform you know um and and I mean let's face it things were harder for women then uh it it probably was very difficult for her to do anything I mean unless she had servants hard for her to do anything but keep house cook and take care of the baby you know um how do you manage to follow your passion if you're a woman back then um I think it probably was really hard and um wow, I, I I mean I, I applaud her and and I and I'm thinking you said she was I, I think you said she was depressed or you you know, you led me to believe that with something you said. I mean it's so often that women are depressed after childbirth. I mean, um it but I bet they didn't recognize things like that back then either. And you know, maybe she was just depressed because she wanted more out of life than I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, taking care of a husband and changing diapers. Yeah, I I absolutely think that what is often called postpartum depression is just the reality hitting of the burden that caring for a child is. And it's a beautiful thing and it's a great thing. And actually, Gilman devoted a lot of her writing to child care and how to raise children properly in a society and make sure that the whole burden doesn't fall to the mother, but, you know, the biological mother. But in modern times, it still does tend to be 
the biological mother's responsibility. And I think if we had more social support and it was more of a community effort, then it would be, you know, then women could carry on with the rest of their lives. Definitely. Right, right, and not give up uh, the first 20 years of their life to uh, to their children. I mean, like, I, I, you know, one of the things I do agree with Hillary Clinton on is it takes a village, you know. Uh, I mean, a woman can't do it by herself with an absent or near-absent husband, you know. Um, so uh, uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman is who we're talking about, listeners. Uh, she was the uh, foremother of ecofeminism, uh, really did a, an incredible amount of work uh, for the time that she lived. Um, so Charlotte, what you, you said uh, that her father was pretty absent, uh, but must have been you know, progressive and open-minded if he was sending her uh, lists of books to read rather, you know, than say, you know, just worry about getting married. Uh, so maybe, uh, I mean, do we know if he was an okay guy? Um, I don't know too it, much about him. I think that she was encouraged to educate herself by all of her family because her her aunts and her other female relatives who she spent time with encouraged her in that way. And they were social reformers, so it was, you know, they were all encouraged to educate themselves, and also I think as a way of earning money, she she was in, uh, her family encouraged her to study the arts and things like that so that she could perhaps be a teacher or mm-hmm. be a, an illustrator, and so she did end up using all those skills in her journal that she put out called The Forerunner, where she would draw her own advertisements and things like that. But to go back to the point you made about the difficulty in being on her own and going out in the world, one of the forms of discrimination she experienced was actually that she wanted to be a working woman. So back then it was seen as not the proper thing for a woman to do and low class and you know all those class issues intersect with all the other things we're talking about. And she was very strong, and she carried on, and she did what she had to do to earn a living, whether it be odd jobs, sewing things for people. She sold soap door to door. She was very industrious, and that allowed her her hard work and you know the various ways that she earned some money allowed her to pursue her writing and eventually make some money at her writing. Well, you know, I'm trying to think of the timeline. Um, Did she ever cross paths with any of the suffragettes? Yes, yes, definitely. She was involved in women's suffrage, and she spoke on the topic all around the country, but not just women's suffrage. I think, if I remember correctly, she talked about that getting the vote will be great, but that's not going to be the only thing. And as we've seen, women's suffrage was and is very important, but that's not going to change the underlying social structures that are based on domination that still right. persist. Exactly. So, um, what do was there anything in particular that helped her uh, come to these conclusions? You know, that are so much in sync with the stuff we believe today. You know, about domination, about um, you know the oppression of religion. Um, even, you know, she, she was against meat-eating, which, I mean, I, I didn't even know there was such a thing as veganism before our modern day. 
Right. Yeah. Well, I would love to go ahead and I can explain that because she wasn't fully, I wouldn't say, I believe that her principles were based on veganism, but of course they didn't have that term back then. And she didn't technically become a vegetarian until later in life. But she definitely was an advocate for animals. She critiqued the keeping of pets, caged birds. She was against all of that. Do you want me to go ahead and go into her ecofeminism and how it was expressed in her writing? Um, well, or or were, yeah. I mean, let's talk about that. But you know how sometimes there's a there's something that you know you know there's a catalyst. You know, was 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 there anything in particular that brought her to this? You know, this this thinking. Uh, I mean, maybe the influence of her aunts, or was there something that happened to her in her life, or was it just her study and research? Um, I mean, what turned her into? I mean, could we say she's one of the first ecofeminists? Definitely. She was an ecofeminist before we had the word for it. And I think that ecofeminism is a philosophy that anyone could arrive at without even knowing that anyone else had arrived at it. You know, it's really just when you start to look throughout history and you try to piece together what are the underlying root causes of the problems we see in the world then it kind of comes to you. I think that with Charlotte Perkins Gilman, her experience as a woman of feeling stifled, caged, enslaved in many ways, mm -hmm. controlled by the patriarchal society, I think she felt like she was being raised to be a dependent. Right. And she, was she, and to was be she an atheist? Um, did, did she turn out to be an atheist or... Was she religious? I would say she was open to to she definitely was an atheist in terms of challenging the existing religions. She didn't like the existing religions, but I think she was open to something beyond, but it definitely wasn't a male white god in the sky, you know that right. kind of thing right yeah right. but anyway i yeah, I think that her experience as a woman though helped her see the way that animals were treated. And so she was able to relate to them. And then she also was, you know, living during a time of the Industrial Revolution. So she was in love with nature, but then seeing the destruction of nature and the growth of the cities and the pollution and the waters and the air. And so I think she lived at a time when all these things were coming together. So she was also a very sensitive person. So being sensitive she started to see how animals suffered, how women suffered, seeing how her mom struggled economically and all those things combined with the women's activism for the vote and all those different things, you know, the, the end of slavery, the civil rights movement, all those things coming together. I think she was alive in a time of great social change and everyone was probably talking about how right, to create right. a better world. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. And well, and you know, uh and before we go, you know, cuz I mean, I know you have a great poem and maybe, you know, since we're talking about you know, she lived in this time where we were going going from an agricultural society to the industrial revolution and all that upheaval and the suffering she saw of animals and things. Um, it, it, we probably should not just assume listeners know what we know about 
how we make that connection between, you know, the way the earth is treated is the way women are treated is the way, you know, uh, animals are treated. Maybe you could speak just real briefly about that, Charlotte. Yeah, I think it would be good to define and clarify ecofeminism. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, you know how uh you know how it's all sort of interrelated, you know that uh you know we can make that uh connection between the way you know society uh sort of uses all of us as commodities. Yeah, so ecofeminism is a philosophy that seeks to understand and eradicate the oppression of and normalize the violence against women, nature, and animals with the goal of creating a more harmonious world. So just to kind of explain what that means, basically, if you look at the way that we as a culture are trained to think about women, animals, and nature, women, animals, and nature are all linked together and simultaneously degraded in the way that we talk about them, the way that they are treated in terms of policy, the way that we think about them. And women tend to be seen, women and animals are both seen as consumable objects. Women are consumed visually. Animals are consumed literally. So basically, women, animals, and nature are all seen as having less value than men and culture, and humanity. So basically, there's a set of dualities that are set up where you can just see this in our language. If you think of a human, you'll tend to think of a man. We see male as the norm, and so human is set up in opposition to animal, and human is seen as better than animal. And you can look at the slang and swear words that we use that degrade animals and make humans better. And even even social scientists, neurologists, everyone, they talk about animals as if being an animal is less, you know, lower down than being human. And that's really a very anthropomorphic way of looking at it. And so then men are seen as superior to women. Civilization is seen as better than nature. The Rational mind, logic, all those things are prized above emotion. And then transcending the body, moving away from the here and now, is seen as a better thing than being imminent, being in the body. And we see that with patriarchal religions, that heaven is far removed from where we are right now. It's high in the sky, and you know when you die, you go to heaven, and it's far away, whereas women and what is female is connected with being in the body, and that's also because we're seen as being more controlled by our bodies because of the biological processes like giving birth and menstruation. So women are more connected with the body. So really there's this whole set of duality. On one side of the duality, we have animal, female, nature, emotion, in the body, and then also dependent. So women, animals, and nature are seen as dependent on men. And then on the male side... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead about the male side, and then then, I'll make a point. On the male side, we have have human, male, civilization, rational, transcendent, the mind, and being independent. 
Well, and, and you know, and, and of course, I, it, you know, I, I'll state the obvious, and, and I, I think it's obvious that this probably all goes back to what I call Bible ecology. I mean, I even teach a class about this, Bible ecology versus goddess ecology. And, you know, it, it, the whole idea that man was, you know, put here to dominate the earth instead of being a good steward of the earth and all the species. You know, it's the it's sort of that male entitlement that everything here on the earth is a commodity for his use. And, you know, women and, you know, animals and the environment, everything gets lumped into that. And, you know, we see it with the destruction that corporations uh, and, you know, are doing, uh, you know, or doing to the planet. Um, you know, without in this idea, you know, you think of uh, the end timers or these people who don't, don't really care that they're destroying the planet uh, because the only thing they're concerned about is getting to heaven and being with Jesus. You know, um, it, it's really a, a different way of of looking at everything, uh, and and it probably is in large part you know, leading, you know, why we can't do something uh, about climate change. So anyway, it, it's it's all wrapped up in this. And um, thank you for that, Charlotte, so that, you know, listeners who maybe are hearing this for the first time sort of have some, you know, backstory to this whole thing, you know, that, uh, that we're talking about. But, uh, you know, getting back to Charlotte... Um, um, you know, it, I, I, I'm curious. I, I don't know why I'm so curious about her upbringing, but uh, you said her mother, they moved every year. Um, it, it, was her mother's family well off or was, uh, you know, was she a struggling single mother that, you know, was what sort of environment was that uh, like for, for, you know, for Charlotte Perkins Gilman? They were moving every year because they were low on money. So they were definitely struggling. Okay, okay. And um, she only ended up with one child? Yes, that's right. Well, that's uh-huh. good. Maybe, yeah, well, that's, I, you know, and that's sort of surprising, too. You know, with birth control, we have to remember that there was, uh, you know, unless, you know, I guess there were midwives with their, their ways of uh, preventing pregnancy back then, you know, uh, it, that was a difficult time for women because I think most women really didn't have a way to prevent pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, did, uh, was that ever part of her, I don't, you know, I'm going to say agenda. I mean, she had so many interests. Uh, was that ever something that she... Um, you know, was interested in or researched or worked toward, uh, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, some sort of form of birth control for women? I don't know much about that in terms of the real world. I know that in her utopia, her land, she's very concerned about women being able to control how many children they have because in her land, they parthenogenetically just by parthenogenesis just means that they give birth without the man. And so they they had a problem of overpopulation, and so it's definitely an issue there where the women have to focus their energies so that they only have one child. And then it is seen as an honor to be chosen by your community in her land as 
one of the women who is called an overmother, which means you've been invited to have more children than one. Hmm. So, so it's definitely something she was concerned with and aware that we need to be able to control reproduction. And I'm sure she was probably friends with Margaret Sanger, who was around in that era, and you know, other women doing that type of work for yeah, yeah, um, reproduction. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I want to go on to her, um, you know, her visions of utopia, and you've sort of hinted at. Her Land, which is what I, I believe a novel that she wrote, right, that uh, sort of gave an idea of what life might be like. Um, but before you do, I, I think you had a great poem of hers that uh, that she wrote that sort of expressed her dismay at how badly she saw uh, animals were treated. Did Did you want to share that? Sure, yeah. And I think that I just want to point out that this is her witnessing suffering on a cattle train, but the point of all of this is not to try to treat animals better, but the point is to free animals because any time that animals are kept for human purposes, they will be abused. So the ultimate goal is liberation. The goal isn't to give them more space or try to treat them better. If we want to treat them better, we must liberate them, and I think that's why her utopia has, we don't, they don't keep any animals there for food or anything. So, okay, okay, so here it goes. Okay, so this is called the cattle train. Below my window goes the cattle train and stands for hours along the river park. Fear, cold, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, and pain. Dumb brutes, we call them, hark. The bleats of frightened mother calling young, deep-throated agony, shrill frantic cries, hoarse murmur of the thirst-distended tongue, up to my window rise. Bleak lies the shore to northern wind and sleet. In open-slatted cars, they stand and freeze. Beside the broad blue river in the heat, all waterless go these. Mm. Hot, fevered, frightened, trampled, bruised, and torn. Frozen to death before the axe descends. We kill these weary creatures, sore and worn, and eat them with our friends. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think about how so many of the slaughterhouses um, you can't even get video of the conditions that these poor animals live in. And, you know, when you end up in these cities that, you know, sort of depend on these, you know, these uh, chicken factories or, um, you know, factory farms and everybody's, you know, in the town uh, are depending on this place for their livelihood, um, you know, it, it it must be horrible, you know, to turn into one of these hardened human beings that can't even see the suffering, you know, because, you know, you think about maybe in the Victorian age, you know, maybe people weren't evolved enough to think that, you know, these were sentient beings, but we know better today, you know, or at least I think most of us do. Um, I, I know you probably must know a lot about that sort of thing, um, Charlotte. You know the, you know how difficult it is these days to, uh, you know, get leaked video and things of these factory farms. I mean, they make it practically impossible, don't they? 
Yeah, it's something that, of course, the companies who profit from it want to keep hidden. But even even back in Gilman's era when maybe the rate of slaughter was slower, now we might kill hundreds per hour, then it might have been a few per hour. So maybe it wouldn't have been quite as bad. I myself have witnessed a very, what would be considered a very humane slaughter. And that was what caused me to go vegan. And just seeing someone killed who doesn't want to die, that's the bottom line. And people have been advocating for veganism and vegetarianism since the beginning of humanity. There have been people speaking out. For example, Pythagoras was a vegetarian. And before we had the term vegetarian, people who abstained from animal products were called Pythagoreans. So it's kind of an under, it's, it's not something a lot of people know about, and I believe that it is the crux of the issue here. I think that the violence we are involved in with each of our meals reinforces our separation from our empathy, the idea that it's okay to harm someone just because you can. It really reinforces the might makes right mentality. And I think that Gilman really saw that, and she connected women, animals, and nature in her work. Wow. Um, you know, when we hear about these these women, you know, you know, maybe they're not a lot different than us today. <clears throat> but, you know, uh, wouldn't you just love to have dinner with somebody like her? You know, and <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, pick her brain and just sit there and let her talk and, uh, you know, just let all of her wisdom sort of just roll over you, you know. Um, well, so so tell me about um, her novel, Her Land. Um, how did that come about and, you know, what were the principles and, uh, you know, what should we know about it? Okay, well, there were three utopias all written in the same vein. The first one was called Moving the Mountain. The second one was Her Land. And then the third one was With Her in Our Land. And they all laid out her vision of a better world. And all three of them were written from the male perspective. And Moving the Mountain, the first one, was what Gilman called a baby utopia. So it was like, this is what could happen 30 years from now. That was written in 1911. And so Moving the Mountain is kind of like a in-between state between where society was back then in 1911 and where she thought they could go if they focused their energy. And then her land is a completely imaginary place. It's a society of women that has been living just with women for thousands of years. They develop parthenogenesis, and then some men come upon them. And then it's this interaction of the men from patriarchal culture talking with the women and learning about their way of life, and it's very fascinating. And then the final one with her in our land, one of the women from her land goes and travels the world with one of the men, and she comments on society. So hmm. in Moving the Mountain, they've already eradicated fur, feathers, hunting, and zoos. And one of the key points that stood out to me in Moving the Mountain is that women reclaim their social power by being the chooser when it comes to male-female relationships. So, you know, in our modern culture, women are taught to sit back and whoever, whatever man wants to be with her, she's supposed to accept, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And so in moving the mountain, the women become the chooser, so to speak, and then they use this power to to change the way things are. And so the men, um, it's told from a perspective of a man who's had amnesia for 30 years. And so he's asking the women, like, how did you, you know, how is there no longer... Uh, you know, drinking alcohol is also, this was the Prohibition era. So he was asking why, how have they done away with smoking and hunting and heavy drinking? And the women explained that with their newfound power, they created a lot of change. So it's really cool. Hmm. Well, you know, and I'm thinking as you were saying that, uh, she probably experienced a lot of arranged marriages. And, you know, maybe that was part of the catalyst uh, for the women choosing instead of just, you know, being happy to be chosen <laughs> by, right. you know, by who, yeah, by whoever you know uh, decides they like you. You know, it, it, uh, it, you know, it, it made little difference if you were happy with him. You know, you just should be happy to be chosen, and you were going to, you know, whoopee, be married. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, although, but really. Oh, are those three books, I mean, uh, available to read? I mean, are they readily available, like on Amazon or something? Yes, you can get the Herland trilogy on Amazon, and I don't really know exactly who put it together. I have a few copies of it, so it's there. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend reading it. But I will say that the layout and you know, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little sloppy in the editing, but because I just I felt like it didn't do justice to whatever she had written in terms of some of the grammatical errors and typos. I was like, who did this? But anyway, <laughs> yeah, the Herland trilogy is available. Okay. Online. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that the values of all of her work were about cooperation, nurturing, care, and community. So even though she uses the men and the women as kind of foils for each other. It's not about pointing the finger at men. It's not about blaming anyone. It's really about lifting everyone up and identifying the cultural structures that encourage men to be in, to be a certain way and encourage women to be a certain way. So it really, her work is all about placing the responsibility on the individual and the community to create change. Well, and and that's she was very wise and insightful, you know, because I mean, even in, you know, among, um, you know, I mean, I'll just say it, you know, uh, I mean, I run into radical feminists on Facebook, and I mean, I've said before that, you know, I've gotten kicked off lists because, um, you know, I think there are some good men out there who have something worth saying, you know, <clears throat> and um, and that's not you know that's not okay uh in some circles and it's and I don't think it's very realistic either i mean we have to have a partnership you know we need each other so the polarization of you know it's i mean it's crazy to be um you know the genders to be at war with one another or to not respect and appreciate one another i mean that's just uh uh, you know, it, what, what hope is there for the future if, um, you know, we don't move forward and try to do it in love and partnership? I mean, um, I mean, that's just my opinion. Absolutely, me too. 
Yeah. So, um, so talk a little bit about the patriarchal reversal of men's work uh, as real work and degrading female work. Yeah, so in a lot of her writing, she looks at history and the economic systems and the way that women's work was seen as not really work. And she says that actually women are the original workers. And if you look at just the word labor, you know, that really originates with women and, you know, giving birth. Mm-hmm. So so she later on, Mary Daly coined the term patriarchal reversal. So patriarchal reversal wasn't one of Gilman's words, but it's a word that we use when the truth or the reality of things is turned on its head. Mm-hmm. And so Gilman says that industry at its base is a feminine function. Because of, her me- because of her mother power, she became the first inventor and laborer, being in truth the mother of all industry as well as all people. So hmm. Gilman really gave women credit for the work they did. And in her land, she has a conversation where the men from patriarchal society come in and are talking to the women in her land, and they tell the women in her land, oh, our women don't work. They stay at home and just enjoy their lives. And then they keep talking, and then it comes out that actually one-third of the women are wage earners. And then it comes out that actually most of those women are poor, and Mm -hmm. it's... uh, so the women from her land are asking these men, and it's interesting because at first the men are saying, well, we, our women have it so, you know, they have it made. They stay in the home and they're well taken care of. And then it turns out that's just the upper classes that have that privilege. Right. And actually most most women, you know, or at least a portion of women have worked throughout history. And so the idea that work is for men gives men the world and then it takes it really tells women that that they don't have access to being out in the world they're relegated to a small role and even then the jobs that are approved for women you know even today are underpaid and limited so in Gilman's book our androcentric culture she really goes into the problem with making it seem like the world is men's and the house is women's. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's it's like women's work is trivial. Um, and it makes me think about Rianne Eisler, uh, you know, talking, I think, in her book, um, maybe it's The Real Wealth of Nations. You know, she talks so much about all of the work that women do that even go unpaid, you know. I mean, for instance, a woman could... Put, you know, so many women maybe stay home and take care of families, whether it be their children and then maybe their aging parents, or um, and maybe they never get paid for that, so they never even have social security such that it is, and that is all just free labor, you know. Or you think about the organizations uh, like, and the church comes to mind, you know, where women volunteer so many hours free. You know, so it's like, you know, women's women's time isn't valued like men's time is. You know, women's work is trivialized where men's work, I think, is seen as something, um, 
you know, much more important and much more valuable. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, this whole stew, you know, this whole hodgepodge of, uh, you know, men's work versus women's work. And, uh, I mean, and all of that needs to be looked at. Uh, I mean, there are people now that are starting to say things like, well, you know, since people can't really make a living at these uh, minimum wage jobs, you know, that we have now since our manufacturing is gone from the United States. I mean, there are actually people out there who are saying people need to be guaranteed a certain, um, uh, you know, a certain income, so to speak, just to be able to survive. Um, And, you know, and I can see where that feels realistic because if it gets to the point where more and more things become automated, where will people find jobs to be able to live? You know, we can't have mass populations living under the bridge. Um, so I think we really are going to have to rethink society on so many levels. I, I mean, it, it just can't continue to go the way it's going because too many people um you know, or or just being, you know, left at the side of the road and in the cold, and while while the minority is really the ones that are are doing well. I agree. And, yeah, and that issue, it goes back well, and, and to it, devaluing. Go okay. ahead. Go ahead. It goes back to devaluing. Oh, it goes back to devaluing the things associated with women, like care and nurturing. And we need to revalue those things. We need to bring care, love, compassion, community as a culture, bring those all, you know, the traits that are associated with femininity, bring them back into the world and say these things matter. And that's actually what our society should be based on, is care and is love for all beings. And that's really what Gilman was talking about in her land, her really ideal society is all about community. It's all about caring for everyone. Well, and and that's really what it should be. I mean, you know, we have, you know, Republicans talking about family values and what a joke that all is. Um, You know, and you have these horrible ideas like, well, if you're poor, you must be lazy. Um, you know, you should pull yourself from uh, up from the bootstraps, even if you don't have bootstraps. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I loved when the Pope came out and said um, in his eight uh, uh, eight points from his uh, apostolic exhortation uh, not that long ago. I think it uh, came out in early early June. He said, um, "Capitalists only see the working class as consumers." and machine tools, you know, um, capitalism has no respect for Earth's natural environment, capitalist pursuit of personal wealth destroys the common good, capitalism uh, is the worship of the golden calf of a money god, Uh, capitalism has lost its ethical code, has no moral compass, Uh, capitalism is destroying non-renewable resources for personal gain, uh, capitalism is threatening the survival of human civilization, and finally, capitalism is killing our planet, our civilization, and the people. Um, I, I mean, I guess I'm hopeful, Charlotte, that you know, when people like the Pope are is saying stuff like this, that you know, maybe we are 
I hope living in the death throes of the way things are, you know, that there are enough wise people out there that um, are going to have the vision to make the changes and um, inform others like, um, you know, like Charlotte Gilman. Uh, I mean, God, she was saying this stuff so long ago. I, I, It's amazing to me that she had not just the insight to know that things could be different because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, this is the way it is. This is the way uh, it always has been. This is the way it always will be. Um, I mean, it, it takes courage, I, I think, to, uh, you know, be somebody blazing a trail with new ideas. Absolutely. And I would like to mention for anyone listening that if you are one of those people, like Karen and I blazing a new trail and trying to create change, we are having the West Coast Ecofeminist Conference here in Irvine, California this month, and I really want to encourage people to join us for that. And you can find it at westcoastecofem.com. And you've made it very affordable, too. Uh, wonderful speakers, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and what, I think it's like $20, $25 a day? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's yeah. incredible. Um, I mean that's going to be an awesome, uh, an awesome event. Um, but you know, and and thanks for making that plug because I wanted to make sure everybody knew about that too. I've been talking about it here on the show the last few weeks. Um, but yeah. tell me a little bit about Gilman um, and the famous yellow uh, wallpaper. What is that? So the yellow wallpaper is probably her most famous work, and. It's thought of as a ghost story, a scary story, a story about psychosis. Basically, during that time, when women got postpartum depression or they were distressed after giving birth, some of them were referred to a man who recommended the rest cure. And the rest cure was that you are not to express yourself through pen or paintbrush. You are supposed to just spend your time only with your child and not do anything that's, that taxes the mind, not do too much physical exercise or things like that. So, hmm. so <laughs> Gilman actually, yeah. Crazy, I mean, I'm right? thinking, okay, just put, put her in a rubber room with a screaming baby. That'll cure it. Exactly. And so Gilman went to this guy and she went and did the rest cure and it did make her more crazy. So the yellow wallpaper is really a fascinating short story that can be re- it can be read in a variety of ways. So it basically it shows the problem with this mindset of women as dependent, women as inferior and how basically in the story the woman starts to go crazy. She sees a pattern in the yellow wallpaper and she starts to imagine all these things happening. And she she breaks free because she starts to realize that she's confined by her husband and you start to see her thoughts becoming more and more a little bit psychotic almost, but also really more sane in a way. But some people, there's even a great article, someone has read the yellow wallpaper from a feline perspective. And so you can also see that she, Gilman was very fond of cats and you could even read it as 
her as a cat. And so that that's an interesting take on it, how much symbolism is in there for feline energy and uh mm. but basically the yellow what? Well well, you know, I, I'm thinking about the, the rest cure and it's making me think a couple things. Um it it's making me think about how women back in the Victorian age they were diagnosed with hysteria. And um, and I think sometimes the cure was to go to these doctors who would vaginally manipulate them into an orgasm, and you know that was the, a, a cure. But you know I, I'm just thinking about how uptight society was and how hard it must have been to be a woman then, and to and, and to have to go to a doctor and have that done to you. I mean, how demeaning is that, you know? And uh, and if a woman has emotions, she's hysterical. Um, I mean, we've come a long way, and, I mean, we still have so far to come. But, you know, this whole rest cure, you know, I, I'm thinking, too, like in the 50s. I, I mean, I know my mother. Um, you know, that was the time, you know, you looked at Leave, to Be- Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best and, you know, these women who were graduating from Brown University were expected to just go become homemakers and I think they were sort of losing their minds a little bit and they ended up medicating themselves because I guess their lives were so empty. I mean, you can only vacuum the floor in heels and pearls so long before I think your your hair is going to, like, light on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. You, you were just making me think about that, you know, poor women in the 50s and you know, poor women in the Victorian age, um, you know, who were subjected to these, uh, you know, sorts of treatments, you know, and here they called it the rest cure. Um, You know, did did any of that have any sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, have any any sort of sex attached to it? I mean... um, Not that I know of. Yeah. I think I think in general the ideal of purity was still promoted and so she was supposed to be just a good mother and just focus on her child and not think too much, not question things too much and for someone like Gilman that would be the death of the soul because she was born to express herself. Right, 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 right. Um now you had here something about the sex strikes. Um, was that something women would do in her utopian civilizations or something to, you know, maybe get the men under control? Well, I was just linking that to a method of activism that women have used throughout history. And in Moving the Mountain, they don't do technical sex strikes, but they do use their sexual power to create social change. So like we were talking about earlier, they changed the whole way that the culture looked at animals and they did away with zoos, with hunting, with keeping animals in laboratories, with fur, feathers, and they were starting to create changes. In moving the mountain, like I said, it was a baby utopia, so it was like on the way to the ideal society. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so they had not yet gotten rid of all slaughterhouses and they were still eating some meat, 
but they said that they had improved the conditions. And I do believe that Gilman's ideals, though, are expressed in her land where they don't keep any animals. But it was in moving the mountain, those changes came about because the women used their social power to convince men. You know, you just choose not to partner, you know, be discriminating in who you partner with. Choose not to partner with men who are going to hunt and going to go kill innocent animals and drink excessively and smoking and all those things that that women of that era had problems with and that were problematic not just for women but for men and for society in general. You know, a lot of violence comes out of heavy drinking and I think that hunting and keeping animals in zoos and laboratories and eating meat perpetuates violence toward women, it perpetuates violence towards children, it's really a culture of domination. So women saw those connections and began to use their power, their social power, to change to change men's minds and behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it, it desensitizes you to the feeling and suffering uh, of, of of others, you know, whether the other is one women or children or animals, you know, um, you just, I mean, I, you, you think about the big push there is now against uh, SeaWorld, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that they have to put these commercials on television because, you know, so much has come out about uh, the conditions that the animals live in. I think people are waking up, you know, slowly, you know, slowly, slowly to these uh sorts of things, you know, whether it be, you know, animals kept in these little cages. I mean, you you hear about, you know, polar bears and, you know, things like, you know, animals like that who they're in these small habitats and, you know, you'll see them pacing up and down, up and down, up and down because they have some, there's so much anxiety. I mean, these animals were, you know, or, or maybe used to having miles and miles to be able to wander and, you know, when they're put into these, you know, these little, um, uh, you know, environments so that humans can gawk at them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, there's there's just so, so much here. And the sex strikes, well, that made me think, uh, I was trying to remember the story, it's a Greek story where, uh, you know, the women used sex to stop the men from going to war. Uh, and I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, basically the women said, you know, if you go to war, don't expect to get any sex. And that's how they, I guess I guess you could say they, they kept peace in the land, um, so to speak, you know. So, um, yeah, I can see the benefit. <laughs> um, well, now, uh, Gilman um, in her land, um, what was the religion like there? They had more of an earth-based religion. It went through some changes. It started out with gods and goddesses, then it became a goddess, and then it became more of just a loving power, kind of motherly energy, and um, basically an energy that wanted the best for them. And it was really, their religion was really linked to mothering and Mm. to caring and to creating. They were very focused on their children and creating a great world for for themselves and for their children. And um, so their religion was in her land. 
they specifically have conversation between the men of patriarchal religions questioning the women. And so the women, it's kind of funny to see the back and forth where the women ask some questions about, you know, Adam and Eve and things like that. And the women deconstruct the logic of the men from the patriarchal cultural religions. And the men say that, oh, well, that's irreverent to ask those types of questions. And we don't, you know, we don't ask those kinds of things. But the religion in her land is very earth-based. It's very practical. It's more atheist. They don't necessarily believe that they go anywhere when they die. They, I think, if I remember correctly, they say something about that they live on through their children I and through see. the society. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I, 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 I find it fascinating that it sounds like you said that Gilman did have a goddess consciousness, even though that didn't turn out to be the focus of the religion, uh, that, that she even sort of went there. Yeah, yeah, she did. I wouldn't say that she was a practitioner of goddess spirituality, but it seems like she was aware of different goddesses, at least as archetypes, mm-hmm. and she was really critical of the problems with the patriarchal religion and like a lot of other feminists talk about that when male when God is male then male becomes the authority or God right. you know male becomes God so right. she was she definitely saw that as a problem and proposed new ways of thinking about religion yeah and you said she helped start a gym for women that's uh that's interesting too yeah she was really into athletics and in fact when the men from patriarchal culture come to her land for the first time. They're writing their notes and they say uh, animals apparently are boreal because they think that these are some kind of creature who live in the trees because the women can run so fast and are so athletic that (laughs) the men don't even think they're human. (laughs) And so then they get to know them and they're just shocked at how fast and how strong they are and also a lot of other things, really intelligent and stuff. But back to the point here, yeah, she she herself was into physical fitness and she did help start at least one gym locally. Mm-hmm. Interesting, really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Charlotte, I guess sort of, um, you know, to start to wrap up, um, you know, uh, Charlotte Gilman's life, um, you know, have have we covered? You think all you know the most important points of her, uh, of 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 her work in the world, um, or or is Thank there you anything? for asking. I think I think we should talk a little bit more about the importance of family and the importance of relationships. Okay. We didn't really get into the issue of dairy, and in her land, one of my favorite parts was that the visiting men asked the women, what do you do without milk? And they say, milk? We have milk in abundance, our own. And then the men say, well, what, you know, they explain about dairy and that they, what the meat industry is like in their world. And in her land, they don't eat animals, they don't use animals, and they are really shocked to learn about dairy. And they ask the men, well, what happens to the baby cow? Doesn't the baby need milk? And then they explain that they take the baby away from the mother. And so her land was really about prizing relationships. And I think that Gilman saw that we must honor all relationships, whether they be in humans or in other animals. And I think that the reason that her land was 
a peaceful place and why they were so environmental and so thriving intellectually and physically and all those things. And if you read the book, you'll see the women have such a sweet spirit and such sharp minds, but but very kind and loving. And I think that's because they're living without the violence against animals. And I think that Gilman put that in the book on purpose and put this conversation there's other conversations about the keeping of dogs and like you were saying about the polar bears. The same could be said about the dogs that we the domesticated dogs that we keep. They are enslaved. And so I think that one of the really important things that Gilman wrote about that not all feminists who look at Gilman's work are looking for, but it's something I'm looking for when I'm reading her stuff, I'm noticing the way that she honored animal relationships. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really an important part of creating this better world is honoring the web of life and honoring that other animals desire to be free and to be able to make their own decisions as far as who they live with and to have their autonomy, and that if we are to create autonomy for women and for all people, we need to grant it to animals too. Yeah, because you think about, um, I think it's wolves that mate for life, and you have these, you know, I mean, it's well documented about how elephants grieve when they lose, you know, one of their uh, members. I mean, to think that, um, you know, animals are, are, you know, have have no mind, have no heart, um, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I think it's really just a testament to, um, you know, humanity's ignorance or willful ignorance. Um, you know, if, if they need to believe that kind of a thing to justify, uh, you know, continuing to mistreat, um, you know, other, other, um, other living things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so Charlotte, you said that uh, toward the end of her life, she she married again. Um, do we know much about the second the second husband? I assume she chose for herself. I mean, did she end up finding happiness in life and um, you know a good marriage? Uh, you know, how did she end her days? I think she did have a good final few years. Her daughter, I believe. So Gilman lived in Pasadena, I think, toward the end of her life. And so her daughter came and lived with her, or at least nearby, and she was close with her. And her newer husband sounded like a great guy. I believe he was like a second cousin or something like that. So she'd known him a long time, and she was able to continue her writing. She worked on her autobiography in her final years, and then she he died and then she developed, I believe, breast cancer, some kind of cancer. And rather than suffering through it, she decided to inhale some chloroform because she was near her end anyway. But I do think that she was satisfied that she got her work done in the world. And she said that the priority for any human is to find your work and set yourself to do it. So I think she really did. She says that she published, she estimates it at 25 volumes. And so she was very prolific. She wrote a lot. She had a lot of, she made a large impact in the culture. Something we didn't talk much about was her speaking. She was often on speaking tours. And then the forerunner, the journal she put out, was sent all over the United States. 
and she also was in contact with prominent scholars of her time, and so I think she really did make a big impact. And right now, her work is really having a renaissance, and people are rediscovering it and reexamining it. They just had a Charlotte Perkins Gilman Society conference at Radcliffe slash Harvard. Wow. And I think people are really getting excited about her work, and she has just so many insights. And what she was writing about really speaks to what we're experiencing today. You know, she was concerned about the environment, about violence, about class issues. So, yeah, I think it's it's very instructive to the things that we're facing today. Yeah, um, it is still still the same issues uh, that uh, we need to solve. So, you know, I, I hope there comes a day, Charlotte, when Charlotte Perkins Gilman, her name uh, flows over our lips like uh, some of the other more uh, women that maybe we um, know a little bit more about. You know, let's let's hope that Charlotte Perkins Gilman becomes, you know, one of these foremothers that everyone knows about and, uh, you know, every everyone looks to for inspiration uh, and, and vision because, you uh, you know, she didn't. She obviously didn't have it easy. But even to the end, you know, I feel like she was a woman, an independent woman in control of her life, and you know, she went out on her own terms. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that seems fitting. Mm-hmm. I like that on her own terms. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so Charlotte, um, what uh, what do you have uh, coming up soon? Are you besides the ecofeminist conference? Um, are you going to be uh, giving any talks or working on any projects or anything else like that you might like to share? Well, I do offer my weekly guided meditations every Friday that are free Earth Energy meditations. People are welcome to sign up for that. You can reach me at charlottecressy.com. That's something I'm really excited about because each week we connect with nature and connect with our inner wisdom. And, yeah, I would love for people to connect with me through my website. There's lots of different things going on. And I also work with people on a one-on-one basis for creating transformation in their lives. And so why don't you mention um, your, your website or email address, whichever is the best way to get in touch. Thank you, yeah. My website is charlottecressy.com. That's spelled C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E, Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y.com. Okay, wonderful. And if uh, folks want to know more about the uh, West Coast Ecofeminist Conference, can uh, they get a link to it from your website of your name? Yeah, it's listed on my events page, but also if you just Google search West Coast Ecofeminist Conference or go to westcoastecofem.com, you'll find it. Okay, and are you giving a talk at the conference? I am. I am speaking about the roots and blossoms of ecofeminism. Okay, all right. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for uh, for bringing uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman to uh, me and our listeners. And I tell you, I'm 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 inspired to read some of her stuff. I think it would be fun, and uh, you know, uh, it's, it sounds like it, it would be a great idea for a book club. You know, to you know, pick up her material and maybe uh, examine it. I, I bet it's fascinating. 
Absolutely. And if you don't have time to read it, it is on Audible. So you can listen to Herland also. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, Charlotte, yeah. thank you thank you so much. And I'm sure I will see you soon, maybe down at the Goddess Temple, or I think you're going to be at the Parliament. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll cross paths in the coming months. Definitely. Thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate you, and thanks for all your important work. And I'm super excited for the buzzing bees you're going to share about now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, here they go. <laughs> okay, awesome. Keep the watching. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye. Well, yes, that's the bees buzzing in my bonnet. And if you're a long-time listener, uh, you know that sound. <laughs> yeah, there they are. Uh, raised up just a little bit. Uh, the bees buzzing around in my bonnet. Um, so yeah, I want. I had so much to share with you tonight, and uh, I think I want to start with uh, telling you about um, uh, that misogyny website that the Southern Poverty Law Center puts out. Uh, you can go find this yourself. Uh, and you might want to know about it, uh, maybe share it on Facebook or something. If you go to www.splcenter.org, that's for Southern Poverty Poverty Law Center, splcenter.org, uh, you can find these, um, these sites. Um, uh, here's what they say. The so-called manosphere is peopled with hundreds of websites, blogs, and forums dedicated to savaging feminists in particular and women, very typically American women in general, although some of the sites make an attempt at civility and try to back their arguments with facts. They are almost all thick with misogynistic attacks They can be astounding for the guttural hatred they express. What follows are brief descriptions of a dozen of these sites. Another resource is the Man Boobs website, uh, M-A-N-B-O-O-B-Z website, a humorous pro-feminist blog um, that keeps a close eye on these and many other woman-hating sites. Um, so I'll just I'll I'll just grab a couple of these. I'm not going to read all 12, uh, but there's the one called Men's Activism. The website uh, tracks news and information about men's issues from around the world with a focus on activism and outrage. Par for the course are lurid headlines like this one: Pakistani wife kills Cook's husband for lusting over daughter. The site also runs stories like the one it headlined, Australia, girl 13 charged after taxi knife attack that involves no abuse accusation but merely meant to undermine what the site claims is the myth that women are less violent than men. Uh, there's the False Rape Society. Uh, it's an Internet news ag uh, aggregator subtitled Community of the Falsely Accused that features stories about allegedly false rape accusations and feminist-crafted anti-male legislation. While the site focuses heavily on news stories about false rape allegations, it frequently veers into such posts as the New Year's Day item attacking a female supporter of then-presidential aspirant Michelle Bachman for telling a reporter it takes a woman to get things done. Um, you know, 
I, I'm not going to say that uh, there aren't false rape accusations out there, but it's really insulting when you consider, um, you know, how many women are penetrated without their permission, how much domestic violence is out there. And, you know, so often you will see these sorts of people commenting on stories as if they don't believe that, you know. Um Anyway, you might want to just read this for yourself and look at some of these sites. Uh, I really didn't know this this existed. I have to admit, maybe I am naive, but um, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's out there. I, I guess I didn't think it was so well organized. Uh, I'm surprised uh, Rush Limbaugh doesn't have one called Feminazis. Um, also, uh, one of the other things I was going to tell you about was uh, FIFA, F-I-F-A. You know, that's the... Uh, that organization that uh, sort of controls all the, the men's and women's soccer out there. Uh, you may have been hearing stuff in the news about um, uh, the, you know, American uh, women became the Women's World Cup champs. And there was this big controversy because the women were made to play on AstroTurf, which uh, if you fall on it or slide on it, it just cuts up your legs. And the men got to play on real grass. Well, you know, they obviously don't think much of the women's teams uh, because the organization uh, pay U.S. women's soccer champs a quarter of what it pays the losing men's teams. So the women women's champions are paid a quarter of what it pays the losing men's teams. But yet they will waste money on other things. Um, and, there, and this comes from Pat. This article uh, lists the five ridiculous things that the soccer organization spent more money on than prizes for the U.S. women's champions. And I'll, I'll just read a couple of them, but, you know, you sort of get the idea that, you know, the women are marginalized and um, not valued. Um, they spent $27 million on um, an embarrassing flop of a movie called uh, United Passions, um, $8 million on each men's soccer team that didn't make it out of the first round of the World Cup, uh, $18 on parties where fans could watch the World Cup for free, $4 million on one year's worth of bonuses to the uh, soccer organization's uh, executive committee, $2 million uh, in a small country that did, doesn't even participate in the World Cup, so, you know, uh, it's like they'll spend almost anything, uh, or, you know, spend their money on almost anything but to pay the women decently and value um, them as athletes. Um, then there was this other article that uh, was on the Daily Coast, which uh, came out on July 4th, uh, the Independence Day special. It said, 13 facts about America conservatives would like you to forget. I'll just name a couple of them. Uh, the United States is not a Christian nation, and the Bible is not the cornerstone of our law. Uh, and they list some of the quotes from the founding fathers that prove that. Um, like Thomas Jefferson said, Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of the common law. 
and that's probably why conservatives want to take Thomas Jefferson out of the history books. Um, those pilgrims were commies, and it saved their lives. Uh, yes, uh, Governor William Bradford's memoirs confirm that the first thing the settlers did upon arrival in Plymouth Colony was to set up a textbook communist system of production and distribution. Every resident of the colony was expected to share the extent of his or her ability, the chores of hunting, farming, cooking, building, making clothes, and in exchange everyone shared the products of that communal labor. And if, But, of course, that, uh, you know, don't look over to Europe with their socialism because that's uh, that's evil. Um, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a socialist, uh, was written in 1982 for public school celebrations of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in America. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Roe v. Wade was a bipartisan decision made by predominantly uh, a Republican Supreme Court. Conservative icon Ronald Reagan once signed a bill legalizing abortion. Reagan also raised federal taxes 11 times. Uh, Barry Goldwater was pro-choice, supported gay rights, deeply despised the religious right, and gasp liked Hillary Clinton. And just in case you don't know, Barry Goldwater was a Republican. Uh, and those job-killing environmental regulations... Those used to be Republican ideas when they still were sane. Um, and the first president to propose national health insurance was a Republican. So, you know, a lot of these things that today's Republicans rail against were Republican ideas. They have just become such extremists that um, they are unrecognizable. But hopefully that will uh, end up biting them in the butt. Uh, because people are tired of it. And uh, that's a great segue to talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders. Uh, here was a recent quote of his. He said, The issue of wealth and income inequality, to my mind, is the great moral issue of our time. When we stand, stand together as white and black and Hispanic and gay and straight and woman and man, when we stand together and demand that this country works for all of us rather than the few, we will transform America with your help. That is what we're going to do. So Bernie is talking about the goddess ideal of partnership. There you go. And um, you can actually find uh, on websites or Facebook links uh, 12 of his um, planks, if you will, uh, 12 of the things that he believes in that, um, you know, I can't imagine that just about everybody wouldn't uh, get behind. I'll just read them real quick. Um, invest in schools, roads, bridges, and airports uh, because our infrastructure is falling apart and that would create a lot of jobs. Transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Make it easier for workers to join a union. Raise the minimum wage. Equal pay regardless of sex or gender. Reform trade policies that send jobs overseas. Make college affordable. Break up the big banks. Make health care available to all. Expand Social Security, Medicaid, and food stamps. Reform the tax code and close corporate loopholes, which is corporate welfare. And overturn Citizens United so that we restore our democratic process. Um, I think you get the hint here. I am going to be voting for Bernie Sanders. I'm also going to be um, volunteering for him a lot. 
Um, also, uh, dear friend William Moore uh, sent this to me over email. It's this cute little story called Never Argue with a Woman. And I thought I would read it to you. I think you'd get a chuckle. Here it goes. Never Argue with a Woman. One morning, the husband returns after several hours of fishing and decides to take a nap. Although not familiar with the lake, the wife decides to take the boat out. She motors out a short distance, anchors, and reads her book. Well, along comes a game warden in his boat. He pulls up alongside the woman and says, Good morning, ma'am. What are you doing? Reading a book, she replies, thinking, Isn't that obvious? Well, you're in a restricted fishing area, the game warden informs her. The woman says, well, I'm sorry, officer, but I'm not fishing. I'm reading. Game warden says, yes, but you have all the equipment. For all I know, you could start at any moment. I'll have to take you in and write you up. Woman says, well, if you do that, I'll have to charge you with sexual assault. The game warden looked amazed and says, but I haven't even touched you, the woman says. Well, that's true, but you have all the equipment. For all I know, you could start at any moment. (laughs) Have a nice day, ma'am, and he left. So the moral of the story is never argue with a woman who reads. It's likely she can also think. (laughs) So thank you, Will. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, you sending that. Um, I wanted to tell you that uh, Saturday I have a special show, and uh, I am going to be talking uh, to uh, a fella by the name of uh, Andrew Go G-O-U-G-H, and uh, I discovered him because uh, I saw him on a television show called Forbidden History, and he was talking about alternative history. And uh, on Saturday, he and I are going to be talking uh, about the hidden hive of history and the goddess who fell to earth. Uh, We're going to talk about how the mother goddess evolves into a bee goddess or the queen bee. Um, We'll talk about examples of the veneration of the bee in prehistory. Uh, about how Atlantis and the uh, and the connection between Minoan Crete and Chateau Hayuk in Turkey, and um, more along those lines, you know, esoteric traditions and uh, sacred sto- stones and goddess and bee veneration, all of that cool stuff. So make sure you tune in um, Saturday or uh, catch it later from the archives. Um, I think you will definitely uh, be glad you did. Um, let me see what else. Um, yeah, why don't we jump over to uh, this commercial that I owe Joe Carson, and I'll be back with the bees in my bonnet. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course.
Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Uh, Dancing with Gaia explores the connections between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. And the DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book, and you know what? It only costs 20 bucks. You can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. Definitely recommend it. Uh, I want to say thanks to uh, a longtime listener, uh, Livnam Carr. Uh, she sent me an email about uh, how she enjoyed uh, a recent show on uh, alternative history and uh, how many of the things that uh, uh, we accept as, uh, as, as history uh, are really fallacies. And I just really enjoyed hearing um, how much you get from the, you know, the guests and our interviews. Uh, so thank you, Liv Nam, also uh, for uh, recording some of those uh, meditations from my book, Goddess Calling, which will soon be up on my website. Uh, thanks to Liv Nam. Uh, besides the meditations that are already there, uh, there will be four more uh, to choose from uh, free. And I'll be telling you about that um, as uh, as they become available on my website uh, at KarenTate.com. And, you know, if you've uh, liked what you've been hearing tonight and in past shows, I hope uh, you'll show your appreciation and support. Uh, please go to my KarenTate.com website. Uh, once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down, buy a book, make a donation, uh, enjoy some of those free meditations that are there. And uh, it would uh, be greatly appreciated uh, if you can uh, hit the PayPal button and send a few bucks now and again. Uh, it helps me pay for the airtime to bring you the, gu the guests that uh, you've come to know and love each week. Uh, yes, I pay out of my pocket uh, to keep the show on the air. The airtime is not free. Uh, so, uh, you know, thank you very much for, for your support and um I love getting your emails and your comments and your suggestions um, and, uh, you know, your show ideas. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, because one of you wrote me uh, when you heard that I was giving a talk on, um, you know, for summer solstice on Father's Day about uh, a salute to Amaterasu and uh, Sekhmet, um, one of you suggested it, so you can actually find that here in the archives uh, because the talk that I gave was recorded, and now I have uploaded it, and uh, you can find it. I posted it, uh, I think, just last Sunday. So it's there in the archives for you to listen to, and uh, I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, also, uh, I got the word today that uh, I'm going to actually be doing doing two things at the Parliament uh, of World Religions in October, uh, besides giving my own talk on reawakening our, sac our earliest sacred stories on uh, Saturday of the Parliament, I am also going to be moderating a panel on the living tradition of the goddess Isis on Friday. So I'm very excited about that, um, to you know have two spots like that in this incredibly prestigious um, 
Parliament, you know, that's coming up. Uh, the first time I'm going to it, and um, I'll actually have a place uh, and be present and be contributing uh, on Friday and on Saturday. So I am in gratitude. Uh, thank you, Goddess, for that acknowledgement and for allowing me to share. Um, Speaking of which, uh, sharing, uh, I will also be giving a presentation at the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference that's going to be in Simi Valley, September 10th through 13th. Uh, I would really recommend if you're in the Southern California area, or even if you're not, because people are coming to it from all around the world, believe it or not, uh, go to goddessspiritrising.com for all the details. Um, I think you'll be moved by close to uh, 40 international presenters, and uh, you will, uh, you know, expand your emotional and spiritual horizons. You can experience workshops and concerts, rituals, healers, vendors, and much more. And uh, that website again is goddessspiritrising.com. Uh, I am specifically going to be doing some things on Friday, and I'm part of a panel. Uh, on Sunday about embracing men and transgenders uh, in goddess spirituality. So uh, just a reminder a reminder before we close tonight that um, you should hit the follow button again uh, just to make sure you're getting notification of the shows. And uh, I think that about does it for me for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And I love hearing for you from you, so please uh, don't hesitate to um, get in touch. Um, and I think to close off tonight, uh, maybe we'll hear from Abigail Spinner McBride, Arms of the Mother. Thank you, dear listeners. Uh, come back on Saturday and then again uh, next uh, Wednesday at our regular time. I will have with me uh, Carol Guyette. And we're going to be talking about sacred plant uh, initiations. Uh, that's what the topic of the show will be, um, yeah, the uh, next Wednesday. We'll be talking about uh, plants as sacred hallucinogens and how you can reach uh, altered states of consciousness and other dimensions. So here we go with Abigail Spinner McBride, Arms of the Mother. Enjoy. Be my mama.